All right. So I hope you guys are in the book for Washington. Just to kind of remind you of what the book is about. So the book was written by the Apostle Paul in the early New Testament. He's written to the Church of Colossians. That's why it's called the, the Colossians. It's called Colossians. So it was written to the Colossians, the inhabitants of the city of Colossians. It's a little town in modern-day Turkey that at one point was pretty happening, pretty hip place to be, lots of interesting trade and stuff like that. But then they kind of started to dwindle because there were some other towns that became more prominent and they were kind of falling by the wayside a little bit. And what we kind of get the sense of as we're reading this letter is that they were beset by a number of different threats. There were a lot of different things that were kind of coming at them, were dangerous to them, and the Apostle Paul is trying to write to them to, to warn them and to train them and teach them what is really true. They were in danger of all kinds of false ideologies and false philosophies and false hopes and false rules, all these silly things that they thought were important that really weren't. And Paul is telling them, hey, hey, wait, before you get into all this stuff, you need to know what's really and the way that you can make sense of all these different false things is by understanding what is really true. And the truest thing, the truest reality, the truest person in all of the universe is Jesus Christ. So Paul's not going to go line by line and try to debunk everyone. He's not going to try to own his enemies. What he does is he puts Jesus Christ on display. And he says, Jesus is amazing. Look at him. Be in love with him. Be in awe of him. He is beyond comprehension. He is so much better than you could possibly imagine. He's greater than anything you could possibly conceive of. And if you look at him, and you know him, and you love him, it will make sense out of everything. Uh, I shared this quote by C.S. Lewis uh, last time we met. And I think it really does sum up what Paul is trying to get at here. C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. Did you get that? He's not saying that he didn't just see the sun because then he believes the sun is there. He, believes, he knows the sun is real, that because by the power of the sun, everything else is laid there. He's able to see everything else the way it truly is. Being a Christian is not just about seeing Jesus and understanding who Jesus is, although that is central to what being a Christian is. It's also about letting Jesus influence everything else you see in life. And because of who Jesus is, it lets you see the way things really are. So just think about that. Like what part of your life needs to have the light of Jesus shine into it so you can see it rightly? Right? You just walk through every day. You know, just maybe you're not thinking about things too hard. It's like, you know, it's just school, it's just my relationship with my parents, it's just my sports team. It's just my friendships, just my phone, it's not a big deal. But do you realize that you, just like all of us, are in danger of not seeing those things rightly if you're not looking at it in the light of who Jesus is? He is in charge and he gets to decide what and how reality is. So our theme for the book of Colossians is living in the light of the sun. That's over. And the kind of the picture here I want you to have is Jesus being the, the blazing sun of the solar system of life, shining down on everything you experience, so you can see everything the way things really are. And so as we get into this letter, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 14 in the first chapter, and Paul is going to start off with a prayer. This is really normal for the Apostle Paul when he starts off with letters. It's pretty normal for a lot of writers in this kind of time period. It was kind of give these things, and kind of all these introductory things. Kind of like when you're writing a, like an email to somebody, do you guys 
Yeah, but you write this email, you don't just lead off, right, with like the crazy, you know, accusatory thing you have. You always lead off, you know, like, oh, hey, I hope you're doing well. I was really interested in you the other day. By the way, then you get into the crazy deep stuff, right? So Paul's starting off with an introductory prayer. And it might be tempting to just kind of gloss over it and think, well, let's just get through that, right? How relevant could that possibly be? But in this prayer, we start to get this picture of what it's like to live in the light of the sun. Begins to pray for and be thankful for the Colossian church. And even in this opening prayer, he starts to unpack what it means when Jesus is your reality, when everything is seen in light of who he is. Now, I do this sometimes when I'm praying. Right? Maybe, you, I don't know, I'm guessing if your parents are Christian, they've done this to you too. Right? Where sometimes I'll be with my kids at night, I'll pray for them before they go to bed. And in that prayer, there are definitely some sub, like some very, very, not deep below the surface implications of what I want them to pick up. Like, Heavenly Father, we love you and praise you that you are gracious, and that leads us to want to be gracious to one another and not be mean to our siblings because you are loving. In Jesus' name, amen. Right? And, and so, what, in that moment, right, I'm praying, but I'm hoping that my kids pick up on a lesson that is important to them. Now, I'm, I'm probably not doing this great motive. Paul had a good motive here when he was writing this thing. But what we're doing when we're looking at this prayer is we're seeing a glimpse of what Paul wants for us and what Paul wants for all believers as they live in the light of the sun. <coughs> I think one of the things that I think about when I think about you know, sunlight right, and how it affects other things is the, is the process of photosynthesis. Right? I think it's just the most amazing thing that every bit of energy that exists on planet Earth comes from the sun. Every calorie you've ever consumed, everything that you require in order to be able to function as a human being, all of it has started with the sun. It all starts there, right? And then for plants, right, plants are this, this incredible genetic biological marvel that God has created to, to just, all they got to do is just got to sit there and sit in the sunlight. And by that light, they live. The light hits them and, and it goes through all this incredible uh, chemical processes, and it's able to create energy that they store, right, that a cow eats, and then you eat, and you get to take in that energy as well. But that energy is hitting this plant, the sunlight hits this plant, and because of what, how God has decided to be, it lives, and it grows, and it bears fruit. It becomes healthier. It becomes useful. That's the picture that Paul wants us to have as we read this passage. What does it look like to live in the light of the sun? For you to be just hit with the radiation of his power and his glory so that you become useful and bear fruit and look more like Jesus. And so let's look at Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 3 to 14. It's kind of a longer passage, but we're going to get through this, okay guys? So Colossians 1, starting at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, 
bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. <coughs> this is God's word. And so from this passage, I want us to see two effects of living in the light of the sun. When you're living in the light of the sun, what happens to you? What happens to Christians as they live and bask in the reality of who Jesus is? And the first is that we have a heavenly hope. We have a heavenly hope. You see this in verse 3. So Paul opens verse 3 with a statement of how thankful he is for the Colossians. Okay? Every time he prays for them, the first thing that comes to mind for him is he is so thankful for them. And what is he thankful for? Look at verse 4. Since we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Right? So what he's thankful for is their faith. They're filled with faith in Jesus Christ and they have a love for one another. Now just as a sidebar, as I pray for you guys, this is honestly one of the things I'm most thankful for you about. As I've gotten to know you guys and see you guys grow up and see how you guys interact as a, as a youth group, I see so much evidence of faith. That people who are striving to know Jesus Christ. I see so much love amongst one another and just guys being silly together and looking around with one another, having good, serious, honest conversations in small groups. So I relate to Paul here when I think about you guys. I'm thankful for your faith and for your love. But where does that faith and love come from? Look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So the life of faith and love that the Colossian believers have comes from the hope that they have. Because they have a certain kind of hope, it is producing in them a life of faith and love. And Paul says they have a heavenly hope, hope that is laid up for them in heaven. Or this is one of the effects of living in the light of the sun. When Jesus is at the blazing center of the solar system of your life, one of the things it produces is a real hope that is fixed in and fixed on heaven. <coughs> so hope, right, can get you through a lot of things. Have you ever been in a situation where you're just hoping, just hoping something would happen? Like, the first thought that came to mind was when I was in college. My sister and I were driving from NorCal back down to, to college in L.A., and uh, we're just trying to make it, right? And I had to go to the bathroom so bad, so bad. And, and I'm not good at a lot of things. One of the things I'm really good at is waiting a long time to go to the bathroom. I just have like a massive bladder. And for some reason, it's, it's got to get all blurry to um, But so I thought, okay, I can make it. I can totally make it. We're here in the middle of California in the five. I'm pretty sure I can make it until we get to LA, right? And, um, and we get there, and we're cresting over the grapevine, right? And this is getting a little dicey. And we're going through like the Sepulveda Pass, kind of by the Gettys. And man, I don't know if we're going to make this thing. And like, and I finally tell my sister the moment you believe it too. We, we got to get out. We, we got to find a bathroom somewhere. Now, at this point, we are right near the exit of where UCLA is. Like literally moments with moments. Like I, I cannot, make it. I cannot make it to my door. And so we pull off the freeway, and I am hoping beyond all hope that there is some building somewhere off of this exit that has a bathroom. Otherwise, I am going to be a grown man. It has an action in my car. And so we pull off, and right there is a hotel. Okay? And it's like, okay, there's definitely bathrooms in hotels. I, 
My sister like is like pulling into the driveway of this hotel. She doesn't even this car doesn't stop all the way. I'm throwing the car door open. I'm racing inside, and I'm trying really nonchalantly, right, very casually, to walk with a full bladder like through the lobby to act like I belong in this hotel, right? And I get to the bathroom, and the men's room is locked, right? And like this is awful. I'm not gonna make this. And so the only recourse I have is turn around and look at the women's restroom. And God's mercy, there was no one hope was realized. God had provided an answer for my hope. But I cannot tell you how desperate I was, how much hope I had that God would provide something that would give me some relief, right? Now, I'm sure all of you probably have not made as much a mistake as I have. Um, I had a friend who had a similar hope, and it did not work out as well. God did not provide in the same way. He was stuck in the 405 and, and had to go to the bathroom really badly. Not just, not just, he didn't have to do just one thing. He had to do two things. And, but the problem was, they were stuck in traffic, completely logged out of the floor. And, and there was nothing left for him to do but to get out of the car, go to the side of the freeway, in front of all the stopped cars, and just do his business. And he and I had the same hope, the same hope that there'd be some bathroom somewhere. And one of us had our hope realized, and one of us had our hopes dashed away. And I think in that, there's a lesson to be learned. That just because you hope something to be true does not mean that you're going to get it. Isn't that true? But you can hope all you want for something. And all of us are built to hope. Hope is baked into who we are. We're all wired to hope in something and to hope for something. It is one of the most human things that we do. It's hoping, hoping for something. And the reason I know why that resonates with everybody is because of Disney princesses, right? This is just the formula that's baked into every single Disney princess, right? Every every Disney song, or every Disney movie starts off with this, this whole category called I Wish song. Right? What's the I Wish song for Cinderella? You guys know? The dream is wish your heart was. No? Right. What's the wish song for um, uh, Tank? Boom, well, I think it, right? Uh, very good. So, you guys get this, right? Disney princesses are built off of this thing where they just wish for something. And deep down inside, we were all Disney princesses. That's just the truth. We're all Disney princesses at the end of the day. We all have an I wish song. What do you wish for? What do you wish for? What do you hope for? Just raw honesty. I hope the Dodgers win the World Series. As a Giants fan, that is my, my, my deepest desire not to happen. Maybe I hope that girl talks to me. I hope I pass this test. I hope my parents don't find out. I hope I make enough money. I hope I get more playing time. I hope no one notices. I hope I make it through the day. All of us hope for something. But there's a problem with this kind of hope. Because worldly hope is just wishful thinking. You don't have actually any idea if it's going to take place. You have no idea if there's going to be a bathroom at the next exit. You have no control over the outcome. For most people, the hope is just like wishing on a star and about as effective. The second problem with this kind of hope is what you're placing your hope in. Right? Most of the time, the thing that you're hoping in is something you think is going to make you happy. Or it's going to bring you peace. It's going to satisfy you deeply. 
But the problem is that most of the things that we hope for and hope in, they're not going to do any of those things. Let's say you get what you hope for. The Dodgers win. The girl talks to you. You pass the test. Your parents don't find out. You have enough money. You get more playing time. You make it through the day. Awesome. What next? Is that enough? It wouldn't be. You would just want something else. Hope is something else. All of those things that you hope for, they're just fleeting. And they're just temporary things. They're not deep and strong enough to carry the weight of your soul's happiness. So we all hope, but our hope is often faulty and misplaced. You know how you can tell? If our hope was certain, and our hope was in things that would last and would actually make a difference and give us complete peace, then we wouldn't be stressed. And we wouldn't be anxious. We wouldn't be worried. Right? If I'm taking medicine that I think is supposed to help me, and I'm still hacking and coughing and feverish, you kind of have to wonder if it's really working. So evaluate what your hope is. Is it really making you at peace? Are you really satisfied with the things you're hoping for? The issue is not that hope is wrong. It's that hoping in the wrong thing is wrong. We need a better hope. We need a stronger hope. And that's what Paul says we have in this passage. We have a hope that is laid up in heaven. Now, what is he talking about? The thing we were made for. The place we were made for. The destiny we were made for is heaven. Because that's where God is. And that's who we were made for. We were made to be in a relationship with the God who made us and created us and gives us our purpose and our being. And when we have a relationship with him, that's what satisfies us. That meets our truest need. That is what's stored up and protected for us in heaven. Paul is saying that the thing we really need, a relationship with the creator of the universe, that is stored up for you in heaven. It is kept for you protected for you. Right? There is such a difference in knowing that this is where your hope is, and it is kept for you by the one who keeps all of his promises. Right? There's a difference. Like My kids sometimes will, now they'll be going off and playing somewhere, and they'll ask me to hold on to something. If they'll come out of Sunday school, they'll hand me like the crap that they made. Like, here, Dad, you hold on to this. Or they'll be at a game, and they have to take out their earrings. Like, here, take my earrings, right? And there is a really big difference between the trustworthiness of them giving me their stuff to hold on to and when they give their mom their stuff. Right? If they give it to me, it is really a gamble. These pockets are a black hole. And I have no idea what's in them at any given time or what's not in them at any given time. It's a surprise every day. Right? But Jamie has like just like her purse is like her mind palace, man. She's just like missed every last corner of this thing. It's like, oh yeah, where was that stick of gum I lent to you like five months ago? Oh yeah, they're in these pockets. Because there's such a difference in trustworthiness, knowing that she is the one that is holding on to these precious things. And so for you to have your hope laid up in heaven, kept by God, should be the most comforting thing in the world. The most important thing in your life is protected by God himself. He is holding on to it, and he's holding on to you. <clears throat> and we know how we can have this hope at the end of verse 5. He says, of this, of this hope, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. And he goes on to say that you've heard this gospel is bearing fruit in the world. Other people have shared it with you. This gospel is where you get your hope. 
with this gospel message that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. That you were destined for destruction and wrath because you failed to be God's standard. And that God was angry with you. But in love, God sent his son Jesus to die in your place so that you could take the punishment you deserve so that God would not be angry with you anymore. That Jesus would rise from the dead so that you can have the promise of new life. So you can have a relationship with God in this life and in eternity to come. Imagine what your life would look like if the thing you hoped in most was what waited for you in heaven. Right? How certain would that be? Right? Heaven for you for, as a Christian is fixed. It is sure. It is certain. It is glorious. It will last forever. It is a place where you were made for. And then you think about grades and school, dating, learning permits, sports, friendship. And it's not that those things are not important, but it does make it a lot less scary. It doesn't make it easy. It doesn't make it insignificant. But all of a sudden, in the light of who Jesus is and the hope we have in heaven, it puts it in this right place. Uh, I'm a big nerd, and I want to read you a passage from a big nerd book. Uh, I think this is just such a beautiful picture of what it is like to feel like you are in a dark place and where you find your hope. This comes from uh, the Return of the King, the, the last part of uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And in this portion, Frodo and Sam are carrying the ring to you know, the throne to the, the fires of Mount Doom, right? It's a pretty, they're in a dark place. Things are looking pretty dire. And they're surrounded by darkness. And night falls. And listen to this passage. So Frodo was asleep almost before the words were spoken. Sam, this is his best friend, his compatriot, struggled with his own weariness. And he took Frodo's hand. And there he sat silent until deep night fell. Then at last, to keep himself awake, he crawled from the hiding place. The land seemed full of noises, but there was no sound of voice or foot. And far above the Ethel Duat in the west, the night sky was still dim. And there, peeping among the cloud rack, above a dark shore high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart as he looked up out on the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end, and listen to this, the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond his reach. His song in the tower had been defiance rather than hope, but then he was thinking of himself, and now for a moment his own faith and even his masters ceased to trouble him. He crawled back into the brambles and laid himself at Frodo's side. Putting away all fear, he cast himself into a deep, untroubled sleep. That's the difference having a heavenly hope to me. When you're in a dark place and an uncertain time, to look up and see a clear shaft of light coming down from heaven to remind you that the shadow is a small and passing thing. So that's the first effect of having a uh, living in the light of the sun is having a heavenly hope. The second is having a worthy walk. A worthy walk. Okay, so let's keep going in verse 9. Okay? And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we stop there. So we're starting to get into what he actually prays for for the Colossians. What does he hope to see as a, as a result of living in the light of the sun in the Colossian church? He wants them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This is what he's praying for. So I want this for you, Christians, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So the idea of a walk, okay, in the Christian, in, in the Bible, is how you live your life. It's everything about you. It's your conduct, your speech, your actions, your thought life, your choices, your relationships, how you spend your time, how you spend your money, what you do on your phone. All of that is how you walk. And what Paul prays for is for your walk to be worthy of the Lord. The thing I have pictured in my mind when I see this kind of language is a set of stakes. So you have your life. Take your week. What did you do this week? Imagine the conversations you had. Imagine where your thoughts went when you were just bored. Imagine what you did with your free time. Imagine your conduct on the field or on the court. Imagine how you conducted yourself with your parents, how you treated your siblings. That is your life, that is your walk on this side of the scales. And on the other side of the scales, you have the glory of Jesus Christ and the glory of God Himself. How do they stack up? Did your week, were you walking worthy of the calling of which you can call? Are you walking worthy of who God is? Do they make sense together? If someone were to look at your life, it would be clear to them that you belong to God and that you're different. This idea of walking the word is going to get picked up later on in the book. We'll spend more time talking about it. But here he describes a few ways this worthy walk should be characterized. There's four different things I have in your list. The first thing about a worthy walk is it means you are filled with knowledge. Right? In verse 90, it has that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Part of walking worthy is knowing the will of God, right? If you don't know what God wants, how are you supposed to know how to live for him? If you don't know what he wants, how are you supposed to know how to walk in a worthy way? And how do you get this knowledge? How do you know what God wants? And this probably isn't surprising, but you find out in this book. The Bible is how God tells us what he wants. And if you read God's word with a humble heart, you get to understand what God is like, what he wants, what he loves, what he doesn't love, and you begin to be shaped by it. That's why we read God's word, is to know who God is and the shape of what he loves. Um, I have known my wife, Jamie, now since we were freshmen in high school. That was in 2000, uh, 1999. So this is like 23 years now I've known her and walked with her. And over the course of those years, just spending time with her and hearing her talk to me and her sharing her life with me, I know what she likes. And I know what her preferences are. I just know the shape of her loves. And one of the things that she loves more than anything else is noodles. And one of the times of life that she loves to eat noodles is about 12 a.m., 1 a.m. in the morning. So she will stay up crazy late at night and without the clockwork. Usually, sometimes we'll be lying in bed like at 12 30 a.m. just lying in Super angry, but she's like, I'm so hungry, you know. And so what I'll do sometimes I'll have to get up, I'll have to make her some noodles. I have a whole list of all these different kinds of noodles. 
Italian stuff, we've got Japanese stuff, lots of lists of noodles I can make for everybody. So we call them Janie's late night noodles. Right? This is just a thing for her. And I only know about this because of the time of and the same thing comes with your relationship with the Lord. You will only know what God likes and what God wants if you are spending time with Him in His Word. And you will walk worthy in that way. Right? You'll know that God loves mercy and justice. And you'll walk with mercy and justice. You'll know that He has a zeal for the lowly and the oppressed. You'll have a heart for them. You'll know that He is generous. And so you will want to be generous. You'll know that He is deeply relational. So you want to be the best friend possible. You need to be filled with knowledge of who God is so you can walk worthy of who he is. Second, you need to also be bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. Look at verse 10. We are fully pleasing and bearing fruit in every good work. Right, you're probably familiar with this picture in the Bible of bearing fruit, right? It's this picture, this idea of like how we can be useful actually producing the kinds of characteristics and attributes that God is pleased with in our lives. Um, my, my wife and I like gardening. Uh, a lot, but I'm, I like gardening very specific things. I only really want to garden things that I can eat. Right? Why would I grow anything else? Why would I put energy and water and all this time and resources into something that I can just look at and be pretty? That's useless to me. I have no use for that whatsoever. I need to eat it for essentially, right? And, and so the whole purpose for, for plants for me is are they bearing fruit? Is there something in it that is really tasty and delicious? Otherwise, it's dead to me. Quite literally. Right? And it's the same thing for us. If you are to be a useful, walking, worthy Christian, you must be bearing fruit. That is the Christian life. Now, what kind of fruit is it that God expects? Like, if you know the fruit of the Spirit, you can probably sing that little song in your head. I have to sing that song in my head in order to remember the fruit of the Spirit. Right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Does your life look like those things? Are you increasingly bearing that kind of fruit? That you actually start doing the things that show that you are a disciple of Christ. I think all too often we could probably look at a part of our life and see we're not bearing fruit. Like you're unloving to your siblings, you're impatient towards your parents, you're harsh towards your friends, you lack self-control with your phone or game. And you might think, yeah, but honestly, everyone does this stuff, right? Everyone's struggling with this stuff. And it's true, everyone does struggle. But, it's not, but it doesn't mean that that's okay. If you are to walk worthy of being a disciple of Christ, you need to look at your life and examine yourself and think, where am I bearing fruit? And where am I struggling to bear fruit? <clears throat> and so we need to be bearing fruit. The, the third idea is to be strengthened. Be strengthened. Right? This, this bearing fruit is a really, really difficult thing. Probably all of us have had some part of our lives where we are just really struggling to bear fruit. It's so difficult. It's so hard. So I'm so thankful for what comes in verse 11. Paul prays that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. As much as the Christian life is you walking, you living, your fruit, your conduct, your life, the engine that is running in the background of all of it is God's strength. Like for all you grammar groups out there, do you notice anything about that verb being strengthened? It's passive. It's passive. This is not an active thing. It's something that is being done to you. This is not Paul saying, okay, go out there and listen to spiritual ways and get yourself yoked for the upcoming spiritual season. 
He's saying you need to be strengthened. You are weak. God's come along and put his weight into you so that you can be strong according to his glorious might. But if you're a Christian, God lives inside of you in the Holy Spirit and he lives in you to strengthen you in moments when you are weak and in your moments when you think you're strong enough and you really aren't. And when that happens, you have all endurance and patience with joy. Right, what is the area of life where you feel is the hardest for you to walk worthy? What part of your life is most imbalanced in that picture of escape? Where you just look at your life and say, yeah, that part right there is really hard for me. I mean, so relationship is difficult. A certain sin that you're struggling with. Apathy towards your faith, just being consumed with the idols of the world. And it probably feels so hard to imagine how your life could be different. But if you're a Christian, God guarantees that He can be because it's His strength that strengthens you according to His glorious might. And the last thing we see about what it means to walk worthy is that we give thanks, we're giving thanks. The last mark of a worthy walk is thankfulness. Verse 12 says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you're a Christian, thankfulness should really be one of the things that characterizes you the most. Because thankfulness comes from seeing that you had a need and someone comes along and meets that need. Thankfulness comes because you see that you have a need and someone comes along and meets that need. Let's just imagine hypothetically one of these days you come and you want to take me to lunch, right? You didn't have lunch plans? You go to lunch, you buy lunch. I did not have a lunch. I needed lunch. And you came along and you met that need and you bought me lunch. So what was that producing me? Thankfulness. I needed lunch. Thanks for that. And Christians, more than anybody else, should realize how big of a need we all have and what God has done to meet that need. What need has God met for you? Look at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. There is no bigger need than this. You were in the domain of darkness. You were enslaved to sin. You were in bondage to the tyranny of a fallen world. But what did God do? He entered into this room to transfer you out of that darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus. So you are no longer a citizen of a fallen, wicked world. You, your citizenship is in the only kingdom that matters. It's the only kingdom that will outlive everything else on this earth and last into eternity. You have a redemption. You've been rescued. You have forgiveness of sins. Look up here. Do you realize that if you're a Christian, at this moment, God is not angry with you anymore? That God looks at you and sees all that you are, all the messes, all the sin, all the failure, and he loves you and is delighted in you, not because of who you are, but only because of what Jesus has done. You have a massive need and God came along and met that need in the most infinitely miraculous, beautiful way possible. How can you not be thankful as a Christian? 
But what if you're not them? What if you just feel nothing about this? It's probably because you didn't think you needed anything. And no one came to meet a need that you didn't have. Right, so if you got together with me and instead of picking up a lunch, you punched me in the face. I would not be thankful because I did not need that. You gave me something I had no need of. And if you don't think you need anything, particularly from God, you will not be a thankful person. If your sin is not if you don't think you're that far off from God, if you don't think sin is that big of a deal, if you have no need of God whatsoever, if the glory and holiness of God is not particularly impressive to you, then yeah, you're probably not going to feel like you need it. And you probably won't feel very thankful. Unless you see just how deeply you were in the domain of darkness, you will not see how wonderful it is to be transferred in the kingdom. There's an old Puritan named Thomas Watson who said this. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. If you don't see how awful your sin was, how needy you were, then Jesus will be boring, irrelevant, you know, kind of an old-fashioned idea, just mediocre. And if you see him as the only one that can rescue you and provide for your greatest need, then you'll be the most thankful person in the world. Think back to your attitude this week. Would you say that you've been a thankful person? Would your parents say that you've been thankful? Would your friends say that you've been thankful? Would your siblings say that you've been thankful? Were you aware this week of just how needy you were? How little you deserve? How generous and how gracious God has been to you? You ought to be thankful. There's a famous pastor who had this habit of, you know, someone would walk up to him and ask him, how are you doing? And his answer, without fail, and I tried this on the place. This was like a guy who would go around speaking at national conferences all over the place, and we're running into him on the street corner. And he said, hey man, how's it going? And his answer to every person that ever asked him this question is better than I deserve. How are you doing? Better than I deserve. That is the refrain of a thankful person who sees how little they deserve and what God has done for them in his mercy. So guys, we have a heavenly hope and a worthy walk. Right? This is what happens when you live in the light of the sun. <coughs> I realize this can be kind of discouraging right? because I have another list of things like, man, this is what I'm supposed to be doing and it feels awfully hard. It feels like the gap between where I'm supposed to be and where I need to be is awfully far. It feels like the scale of being balanced with the glory of God feels awfully imbalanced. But I want to encourage you that for plants to thrive and grow in the light of the sun, it takes time. Right? A massive oak tree does not just pop up out of the ground like you, the moment you put a seed in the dirt. It takes time and faithfulness and gentle watering and the difficulty of cold and hard seasons. It takes time for the sun to bear fruit in the life of a plant that needs the sun. And so if you feel discouraged by not walking worthy, by the, by the false hope that you think you struggle with, don't, don't be discouraged. If you're trying to live in the light of the sun, it's not happening right away. Let the sun have its effect. And just bask in its glory and be faithful to walk with him. Let's pray again. So God, we thank you that in this, this brief passage we receive just a glimpse of what life can look like. It is so much better 
than the portrait of the world that's offered to us by uh, the, the false teachers and false ideologies that are out there. This is true love. This is true happiness. This is true meaning. To know Jesus and to see everything in light of him. Would you give us a better hope than the fleeting things of this world? Would you allow us to walk worthy of the Lord that we can have a life that reflects the fact that Jesus is everything to us and has truly changed us? So be with us in your small groups. I pray that you help us to answer our questions honestly and humbly. God, would you be glorified in our time together? Because I'm